And welcome back to Equity, a podcast all about the business of startups, where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex, and I'm joined today by senior TechCrunch reporter and early stage maven. It's Natasha Mascarenas. Natasha, you had the best drink in the world just minutes ago. Tell us what it was and why it's the best. Oh my God, it is the best. It's an iced Americano, and I will go on the record to apologize to Alex Wilhelm for judging him for so many years on this Americano (laughs) habit he had. I finally had to do it when I went to Italy last summer. And now I'm in love with them. So yeah, best drink. Apology accepted. Uh, <laughs> we're also joined today by Marianne Azevedo, another one of our fine senior TechCrunch reporters. Marianne, spring has been here for a couple of days now, and you also have an iced beverage. Tell us why and tell us what it is. Yes, indeed I do. It's an iced coffee with vanilla flavor from Chick-fil-A, probably Yum. full of sugar, but still so, so good. And I'm really enjoying it. And the reason why I went through all of this before the show started is that we have been blissfully inundated with a pile of news in the last couple of weeks. So we have all reverted even more heavily to our coffee habits because we have needed the energy to power through. For example, we got the script together last night. And then, of course, the TikTok hearings happened. So quite a lot to talk about. We're going to do TikTok. Then we're going to do Duolingo, eToro, DAOs, what's going on with HR unicorns, and then talk about AI. It is going to be absolutely packed. But before we get into any of that, the breaking news kind of at the end of this week was that TikTok went before Congress and Natasha, 150 million Americans now use TikTok. I was shocked by that number. I'm curious if you were as surprised by the growth in the app as I was. Oh my gosh. I'm not surprised in the way that it has also politicized our country and the world. Like it has to be used by such a massive force to make this big of a splash. Like if you go to our homepage uh, right now, which I realize we're doing a lot these days on the pod. Um, Read TechCrunch.com. <laughs> and that's the story though, to pay attention to. And none of us are TikTok reporters. So I'm not going to pretend... Like I know what TikTok CEO is going to say, but I will say that like the the big questions ahead are around user data and is it going to be banned ever? You know, so many criticisms, mostly around national security, but also, I mean, young users, mental health as well. So I think it's kind of like this. I deleted TikTok, but not because of these reasons, because it was addicting. <laughs> but I, I'm kind of now tuning back in and, and interested to see what happens next. Yeah. So I'm not surprised by the numbers because I actually know a lot of people young and older who are TikTok users. So I think its broad appeal is clear. A lot of people enjoy getting on TikTok. It's claimed the same that it's addictive. I would say though, I feel like the scrutiny really very much is around the whole concept of the data and and all that. Because if we're talking about young people and exposure to what they see and all of that, I mean, have you been on Instagram lately? I mean, come on. Instagram is full of like pictures that are just not appropriate and all sorts of language and things like that. So why is Instagram not under fire for those same reasons in this way. Well, that's why I tuned in to the congressional hearing on Thursday between the CEO of TikTok and uh, Congress. I was expecting, much like you said, Marianne and Natasha, a focus on data security and the relation between TikTok and its parent company, ByteDance and the Chinese government and so forth. And there was some of that, to be clear. Uh, There was also a lot of what you guys just mentioned, which is kind of the same stuff we've heard thrown at other social media companies. And to me, it almost felt a little bit distracting. Like, sure, we should talk about Section 230 in the American legal code, 
But that's standard social media fare, whereas it seems that the the geopolitical question here is more about how do we deal with apps owned by foreign companies that are party to governments that are authoritarian and have different views on data privacy. And there I wanted more, frankly. Yeah, right. Co-sign all of that. The uh, the latest news, though, on this is that the Biden administration is pushing for TikTok to be sold and then essentially reconstituted as an American company, really just kind of adjusting that down to the base. And the Chinese government is saying no to that. Wow. And yeah, well, if the uh, vibe is either it's sold or it's banned and the Chinese government says it can't be sold, well, then I think we're going to get to a ban. I, that's where this looks like it's leading. We'll have a lot more reporting on the site about this as we learn more. But based on what we can read the news, that's where it looks like it's heading. Now, putting TikTok aside, because I'm still honestly not cool enough to really know why it's cool. Uh, Natasha, <laughs> we're going to head back to your original domicile here at TechCrunch in the EdTech land. Yes. But this time with a uh, musical twist. Yes. I mean, Duolingo compared to TikTok is a much less controversial company. Uh, you know, <laughs> you may and probably know about it through its language learning app, which has become super, you know, synonymous in the EdTech and just like general human world as a fun app to use. But I broke a story this week about them working on a music app. And it didn't come as a super surprise to me because Duolingo's slowly been launching apps outside of just teaching you how to speak Spanish or insert one of its you know dozens of languages here. Last year, it launched a math app. And now it's hiring people to work on a music app, which to me is just, I mean, so exciting. And I'm not going to like be annoyed at them for it. It just feels very non-controversial. I have nothing cynical to say other than it's nice to see people still try and gamify learning, even with EdTech Spotlight, a little bit dimmer. What do you think? How did you break the story? Duolingo is one of like the three companies that I check their job listings religiously. And so (laughs) I know we all have our companies that we are like kind of overly invested in. And that is one of them. So they're hiring like multiple roles to help with uh, creating the music app. And we we don't know, like as a result, we don't really know if it's going to teach you to read music, write music, learn instruments, but... Cute. Anyways, I love that's how you found out. Good, (laughs) Good sleuthing. Thank you. Thank you. There are a lot of these little reporter tricks, like checking Form Ds to see who's raising a fund or who's filing new capital, checking job listings, looking at overall employee counts on LinkedIn, Yes, uh, using Diff Checker to track TOS changes. We all have our little tips and tricks ahead of the news cycle. But what took me by surprise, Natasha, when I was prepping for this part of the show was that I had forgotten that Duolingo was public because they haven't really been in the news much. Oh so my God, it's true. I just pulled up their results Ooh. and I was looking through these earlier and- Duolingo passed 100 million in Q4 revenue at the end of 2022. So they're big. I mean, that's putting them on a over $400 million mm-hmm. per year run rate. And their share price is still above its IPO price. They're not a collapse uh, post IPO like we've seen. Yeah. Like, really not typical these days of startups that have gone public in recent years to see them trading at a decent amount above where they they first started at the gate with. To give them like one more pat on the back, they went public during like the EdTech boom. So it was kind of this like, Mm -hmm. this fits into the narrative moment. But now that the narrative has changed and the fact that they, I believe they doubled their total revenue compared to last year um, and more than doubled its paid subscriber base. And so I'm kind of just like, they were able to hold on to momentum. And I think there's still a lot of questions ahead on efficacy around their language learning app and blah, blah, blah. But I think they're moving definitely into more of a learning platform than like a language platform for maybe a good reason. I mean, I will say this though, because my daughter started taking music lessons Mm -hmm. uh, recently. And so 
having some insight into that. And then also talking to other people who like said, Oh, I just go onto YouTube and I learned how to play that way. Oh my God. Like, I'm just, yeah, I'm just kind of curious, like where Duolingo is going to fit into this, like where there's people going onto YouTube and learning things for free. And then like people like my daughter who are paying for like private music lessons, like where to, where will Duolingo's offering fit in? Will it be for like people who want a little more structure, but don't want to have to pay for private lessons or things like that? You know what I mean? Yeah. They're good questions. It's kind of like the prosumer to me, like the professional in this version is like private music lessons, which I did my entire youth and going on YouTube and going self-directed, like a a more guided approach to learning how to read sheet music, for example, is a great use for Duolingo probably because it's something that you can learn on an iterative bite-sized basis. So Mm -hmm. I can see how that Mm -hmm. fits in. Math also to me makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Uh, Duolingo, by the way, is estimating up to 498 million in revenue for this year. So that would be a half billion. The company's worth five and a half. It's doing quite well. And shout out to them for somehow bucking every trend we've discussed for the last six months. Impressive. I know. Impressive. Oh oh my God. Look at us being so optimistic. High up in the show. (laughs) We're going to take a quick turn though, because we're talking about a different topic now. Alex, what's your deal of the week this week? I'm going to shock you and surprise you, and I'm going to be positive about DAOs. Oh, I thought you now, were going to be negative, and I was going to be well, positive. I was. That, that's what we discussed. Because I, But then you're all like, we're being optimistic, and I'm, you know, spring is here, literally. So, like... I'll be negative. Don't worry. Right, okay. <laughs> to be clear, we don't set up a WWE style of positivity, negativity thing. We should. <laughs> Maybe it'd be a better podcast. But we do kind of pick topics, and then we discuss how we feel about them, and we set up the show notes in that way. Let's back up. Here's the story. Seed Club Ventures has put together a $25 million fund focused on DAOs, Decentralized Autonomous Organizations, aka DAOs, if you pronounce the uh, the acronym out. And the company said that their thesis is really built around shifting Web2 created platforms like YouTube towards a more Web3 creator economy where ownership is shared by the actual community underpinning the product. Now, from a high level, I love that because I'm a big fan of more democratic systems. I'm a fan of more democratic corporate governance. I'm in favor of this. My beef, going back to what I was originally going to say, is that do we need a DAO to do this? Because DAOs are often associated with governance tokens and governance tokens come with security risks that are inherent to current Web3 platforms. And so Natasha, to me, the thrust is good. I'm just not sold on the conveyance mechanism for better governance. I would agree with that. Like, I I think that is the question for DAOs because they unfortunately were part of the crypto boom. And then I think that added a lot of like tourist DAOs into the sector that created trust issues. But if everything that is a DAO needs to be one, like, can it just be a community? Does it need to be something that's more financialized? So yeah, I think there was some sort of like reset that needed to happen. I think the timing is why I'm bullish. Like the fact that it's launching now, I I messaged Jackie who wrote the piece for the bull argument and I can I can quote her because listen to Chain Reaction and read her newsletter. But she said that prominent crypto VCs, family offices, traditional VCs are all seeing it as a legitimate sector. Even if everyone's not talking about it, people are still quietly investing and that in and of itself is important. All right, Marianne. Yeah, I mean, I that's great. Jackie's right. You know, not to take away from that. I still am skeptical though a little bit about the idea of DAOs. And I think that's just because I think people fight a lot and things change. And so just because you may come to one agreement collectively doesn't mean that everybody's going to feel the same way, you know, a few months or a year later. You know, I just have my doubts about the sustainability of these type of 
organizations long term because just the sheer just human nature, right? I mean, people change, they get pissed at each other, things like that happen. And and then what do you do? So you had your doubts about <laughs> DAOs because they operate a little bit more like HOAs. Oh my God. That's the headline. Oh my down. God. That was that was like so bad. It was good, Alex. So Teresa, our, our fine producer who keeps the show on the rails, just wrote in the chat, groan. <laughs> My point is, terrible puns aside, that you're arguing that essentially when you bring together people who share an interest or a care, like you see in an HOA, often what you end up with is fractious infighting versus democratic bliss. Yes. I, that's very true. But I will say that the optimism that Jackie pointed out via Natasha it is still bubbling along, but there's kind of a weird imbalance in the market that I wanted to pull out. So in Jackie's piece, one of the folks from Seed Club Ventures said that, and quote, this might be controversial, but I would say we have too many DAO tools and more companies building tools than governable DAOs. And this reminds me a little bit of like the old joke that there were more creator economy startups than creators using the tools. Yeah. And so I wonder if everyone's like, look, we're going to build the infrastructure for the future because that's where the money is. Yeah. And then we ended up with lots of roads and very few cars on them. Right. It's kind of like the in terms of like a risk scale, it's probably like DAOs, the most risky to start if you're trying to make money. Then number two, like the tooling. And then number three is this venture fund that just backs things that maybe have the chance. So I feel like maybe out of all three of those buckets in the Dow world, this fund feels the most clear of a play. Do you agree with that assessment? I like your hierarchy of financialization there. I I guess I would just say trying to pick which is the least risky of that particular cohort is is tough just because we're so on the speculative edge of sure. technology and governance. But to be clear, though, in a sense, that's actually a bullish take because that's where we want venture and startups to be. We want them to be out there pushing the envelope and kind of opening new new areas for the future. What I want to see is a DAO that is not a gimmick that has a large material world impact as like a proof point, like SaaS became big because Salesforce showed you could do it. On-demand pricing right. became big because Twilio proved you can be, make billions doing it. Where's the DAO that changes minds? But we need to move on. Marianne, uh, if you rewind the clock, Robinhood was this big deal. Everyone was like, oh my gosh, consumer trading. Woo. And there were other companies also in the mix, including eToro. eToro. Yeah. So eToro was in the news again this week. It was an interesting deal. So they they told me that they secured $250 million at a $3.5 million valuation. So it was not nearly as straightforward as one might think. As we got into the details of this financing, it was not a typical equity round. They actually raised the money through something called an advanced investment agreement. This is why I love my job. I'm always learning, right? I'm always learning. So we learned that an AIA is an agreement where an investor, investors in this case, pay in advance for shares that will be allocated at a later date, sometimes at a discount. So eToro was one of the companies that was going to go public via SPAC. February 2021. And it was initially planned to be valued with a valuation, sorry, it was $10.4 billion. So at the time, they signed this agreement with their investors saying that if it did not end up going public via SPAC and did not raise any additional funding rounds, then these investors would put this money into the company, which is $250 million. So it's not like they just raised it now out of nowhere. This was an agreement signed two years ago that's just kind of coming to fruition. Does that make sense? 
Okay. I want to break this out in, in startup terms. So we're all familiar with safes, which are simple agreements for future equity. And in those, capital is given to the startup now, and then it's converted to stock or equity later on. And there's often a discount or a cap. So there's ways to kind of control the future evaluation at which the dollars are converted to equity. In this case, though, Marianne, the money is actually dispersed later, in this case now, and at a potential discount, but given that the SPAC didn't happen, it's not really at a discount to that. It's just kind of, it works now like a de novo funding round, even though it was agreed upon yeah, back right. in the day. Right, right. And so it's also notable that eToro didn't have a great year last year. So 49% decline in commissions, which is pretty much revenue, pretty big. And so basically its commissions totaled almost exactly the amount of revenue it generated in 2020. Okay. So like it went up, way up and then down again. What drove the the kind of boom bust cycle in 2021 versus 2022 revenues there? There was a lot of crypto activity in 2021. Mm. So when that died down last year, you know, the company took a hit. However, they claim that they're still profitable which is very interesting as well. On the profitability front, it's very interesting because we went back through their SPAC deck, which they put together back when they were looking to go public in a consummation deal at about a $10.4 billion valuation. And they had a lot of history of, uh, I think it was adjusted EBITDA profitability, maybe just EBITDA, I forget which. And the company you know, does have more historical profitability than most, which I think is underpinning this valuation that it managed mm-hmm. to, to secure. My question is, could it have raised this amount of money, this valuation, if it had to go out and didn't have this prior agreement in place or not? And no matter how you slice it, they need to get back to growth, profitability aside, to kind of grow back into this valuation mark. So I'm very curious about the company, but we've also seen Robinhood, Coinbase, and other companies that depend on commission-based trading, especially in the crypto sector, see revenue declines. Right. As a side note, I feel like this is like my new bar for writing about a funding round. It doesn't need to be as complicated as an advanced investment agreement. But Marianne, just to guess you up, this story had everything in terms of tension, context, I mean, setbacks and and crypto. And then it ended even with this like amazing kicker, which is like, don't worry, Etro didn't have to worry about SVB because it didn't have any material exposure. So I loved this piece. And I feel like this Aww, needs to be you. like the, the new standard for pitching us. You've told us all your drama even if you don't want to. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, if we're going to cover a funding around these days, there really needs to be like some interesting backstory to help us like really want to cover, right? We've got to have a little extra there to get our attention. And one way to get attention of us to make your funding round stand out is to raise a half billion dollars in <laughs> less than 24 hours. So Marianne, give us the, the, the top line here on the fine kids over at Rippling. Yeah. So, you know, eToro's financing was agreed upon two years ago. And like the other extreme, Rippling, Connie wrote about this in a super story, like great storytelling, a $500 million raise on the part of Rippling, which is an HR tech company that's like sort of a fintech company too, because it provides payroll. And basically when, when SVP imploded, it was a huge problem for Rippling. Like the company felt like Parker Conrad, CEO, was kind of publicly freaking out on Twitter a bit because he did not know how they were going to help all their client companies pay their employees. So it was a, it was a huge issue. Connie detailed it in her story. They ended up having to liquidate $130 million in money market funds to help its customers fund their payrolls. And Marianne, this was money that they were giving to those companies for their payroll or money they needed in order to function? 
You know, that's a good question. I'm not 100% clear on okay. on that, but I think it was to meet payroll, just specifically for a payroll. So a lot of money flows through these companies that pay payroll. I mean, I don't know each payroll unicorn's total throughput, if you will, but we're talking about <laughs> billions of dollars. And so, and because money kind of comes out of customer bank accounts and then into these companies and their accounts, and then is sent out to employees, if the money gets frozen at any point in that, it gets very tricky. So Rippling didn't need cash to operate its business, although if it's all its cash had been in SVB, that was the same issue that every startup had that had that problem. Uh, in this case, it, it had a lot of its payroll money in motion, it appears, uh, yeah. a, a bit illiquid. Got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, definitely the funds. Sorry, I think I misunderstood your question originally. Yeah, the liquidating of the money market funds was as I understood it, specifically to help its customers meet payroll. Got it, got right. it, got it. Right. Okay. So, and then they were like, okay, but this is not enough. So then it's, you know, started having negotiations with an investor, Green Oaks, and and like within 12 hours had signed a term sheet for $500 million. But apparently, I think right before the signing of that term sheet is when the agreement where the, the government said that would bail out SVB took place. And Green Oaks, the lead investor, said that technically Rippling could have backed out right of the deal and been like, okay, you know what? Maybe we don't need to do this right now. But the company didn't and went through. So the company went ahead and raised this large sum of money, half a billion dollars at the same valuation at which it raised its last round, which is $11.25 billion. So it was a it was a flat round, but most importantly, a big cash infusion when it potentially could have really needed it. Now to your point earlier, Rippling did not have all its cash at SVB. It had already moved some of its banking business to JP Morgan about nine months earlier. And apparently was trying to do more, but it just wasn't happening fast enough oh my when, God. when all this like went down. So I can imagine his stress level, right? Like it was probably just through the roof. I mean, but then on the other side, like I think about all the venture investors who like were flexing their dry powder for the past six months. The fact that they were able to pull off something over a weekend is amazing. But also, I just think it says so much about the capital that has been locked up. And like, why was it so true? You know, just I don't know. I feel like it very much is like a statement in how much dry powder is on the market, too. Yeah. I mean, not all dry powder is fake, it turns out. Yes. In Green Oaks, in this case, I mean, one of the standout notes on my notebook from this story was the fact that Green Oaks was able and willing to commit that much capital that quickly. Shout out. Like that, okay. Data point. Also, that Rippling was able to raise it at a flat valuation under duress. Right. Shout out to Rippling. You know, that right. says a lot about its finances, which we don't have a lot of detail on. Like, I don't actually know how big it is, but now I'm like quadruply curious about that. And I'll also say that others, there were a couple other payroll companies that had rails through SVB that had this related issue. Hopefully in the future, everyone will learn and this you know won't happen again. But like, it, what a shocking overall turn of events. I know we talked a lot about rippling, but there is like a broader question being asked of payroll companies. Alex, you looked at them from the perspective of the tech IPO market. Tell us what's going on there. Yeah. Well, you guys know that I, I love a startup cluster and I love myself <laughs> some pre-IPO companies. These are two of my absolute favorite things in our particular niche. And so when Velocity Global reached out and we're like, hey, we're big, pay attention to us. We'll give you a bunch of numbers. I was like, I will take that phone call. 
I do love when companies are, and I'm speaking loosely here, gearing up for an eventual IPO and want to make sure that people who are going to cover the eventual IPO have spoken to the CEOs before there's a quiet period. Now, I am not saying that Velocity Global is about to file. I don't know. I would suspect within the next 18 months if I was guessing, but this felt like that. So I took the opportunity to chat with them. They're at more than 200 million ARR, growing 40% per year organically and a history of profitability. And then I also looked at other companies in the space, Rippling, Deal, Gusto. There's, there's actually a couple others as well that I should probably do kind of a second piece and look at. But the thing that, that shocked me was just how big they are. I mean, Deal, I mean, Marianne, you've covered Deal quite a lot, but I didn't realize that Deal nearly hit 300 million ARR at the end of last year. Gusto has added 50% to its customer base to 300,000 customers at the end of last year. Velocity Global, 200 million ARR. Rippling, question mark. But like, there is so much accumulated corporate value in these companies. I'm really excited about the eventual S1 parade. It's going to be a blast. Who's going to go first? I don't know, but your boy's hype. Oh my God. <laughs> You've successfully made me hype too. <laughs> yeah. I feel like this is definitely a space where we've seen a lot going on, a lot of venture dollars being poured into as well. And just a lot of attention, I think in part when the pandemic happened and just all this emphasis on on paying people remotely and globally and all of that, you know, just, just kind of put more attention on these companies. So I thought your story was fascinating it, and it was a long time coming to be honest. So I'm glad you wrote it. I felt a little silly when I was writing. I'm like, oh, I'm really behind. And to give everyone listening a perspective on how much money we're talking about in terms of not just value created the startups, but like potential returns for their venture backers. As we said, Rippling reaffirmed its $11.25 billion valuation. Deal is worth, Marianne, $12 billion, I believe. Okay. So oh. it was last worth around $12 billion. I have seen behind the scenes chatter that it is not necessarily valued at that amount right now. By secondary markets or by primary investment? I think secondary markets. Well, if we're going to start doing secondary prices, everyone's going to be worth a, a buck 50 and a fill up. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. But it was, yeah, it was valued at 12 billion at its last raise. It has okay. been growing quite a lot in terms of ARR. I mean, as Alex pointed out, almost 300 million at the end of last year, which was what multiples compared to what it was the year prior. Yes. And Gusto uh, worth nine and a half billion, Velocity Global, two billion. So there's a lot of, there's just dozens of billions of dollars here. The two companies that I'm most surprised to see on the list of the biggest companies are, you know, of course, Velocity Global, my first time hearing about them. And then Deal, who I think up until now, I kind of treated as a much smaller startup. They're much bigger. So I'm going to start treating them like that. And there was an interesting business insider piece that came out this week looking into their workplace culture, which I mean, too much to summarize in our podcast, but big shout out to the team there. And we can um, happily nod to it. But I'm sure we've, some of us have tweeted it out already. There's also Remote and other companies here as well. Sorry, you can email me if I forgot your name there. <laughs> it's like what neobanks wish they were. I feel like there's so <laughs> oh! many big companies. <laughs> oh, that's another good one. <laughs> Why are you going to twist the knife like that? This was my shot of optimism. <laughs> oh, sorry. Here's Natasha just... so nice. <laughs> forget <laughs> your pinata. Whack. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's go ahead and drop the money theme and instead talk about the absolute base element here of technology, which is innovation and artificial intelligence. Now, there is so much going on here. Let's just start with this. How much have we played with these tools? I've played with a number of them, but I'm curious how much time you guys have gone to spend with ChatGPT and other similar tools. 
I would say like a healthy amount. Like it is ironically coming up in social circles. Like when SVB crashed, I had a wine night that night. And like on the TV, we just started putting in prompts to chat GPT to tell us about SVB. And they're not allowed to do that because they don't have the ability to process recent news. But it was a very San Francisco moment. And I feel like I am honestly starting to feel the wishes of Cerebral Valley come true into my neck of the woods. That that story is so heartwarming because that's what I would have been doing in San Francisco Uh, if I still lived there. I wish you both lived here. We would have so much fun. Oh my God. Unwinding together from this crazy news cycle. So I, I honestly think AI for me right now has been used much more as like a Natasha the person thing than Natasha the journalist. Interesting. And then Marianne, I wanted to ask you about uh, your kids because they're in school, mm-hmm. they're school age. And so I'm curious, have their schools sent home like rules and regs about like using generative text AIs? Yeah. I mean, well, my older, obviously, you know, it's more applicable because of the essay writing that, you know, stuff that you don't see in elementary school as much. But yeah, certainly there's all sorts of warnings about, you know, being careful about generating essays with with software and all that. But I think currently there's not much they can do about it, right? Because there's no way, there's no way yet for them to check to see if an essay was created by a bot or not. I think the only way maybe that a, a teacher could tell is if like students in the same class submitted very, very similar essays that that you could presume were generated by the same bot. You know what I mean? But like if you're a teacher, especially an English teacher, I mean, my God, you might as well just assume that 90% of the essays were generated by a bot. I hate to say it. That's terrifying. Yeah. But what we have seen lately is kind of a fusillade of updates. So we've talked about how GPT-4 has reached the market. And we've also heard from Baidu, their Ernie AI bot is out in the market to a degree. There's Bard from Google. And then Natasha, there's also a thing called Claude. And this is interesting because it turns out that Anthropic, the company behind Claude, actually is backed by a company we've all heard of. (laughs) Google. Google. Yeah. So we were researching, obviously, like preparing for the show. And then I just was really surprised because I was like, Claude, what's Claude? And then I saw that Claude was created by this company, which Google just invested $300 million in in February. So I'm like very confused here. I mean, so Google's just got opened up early access to its AI chatbot Bard. But yet last month, just last month, it put hundreds of millions of dollars into this other startup that was founded by like what former open AI people. I don't get it. Like what? So it's a competitor that it just funded? Even worse from a PR perspective, I'm going to read you a headline from March 21st, 2023 on TechWrench.com. Google's Bard lags behind GPT-4 and Claude in head-to-head comparison. So if you're if you're the Bard team and you watched your parent company put money into a competitor and you got whacked in a headline, I mean, you got to go home with your tail between your legs. I'm confused. Like, I really don't get it. But anyway, this is probably a whole other discussion. But I think the point is that there's just now all these different companies are clamoring to get out these AI chatbots. Everybody's just like freaking out about it. My question is, how long is this hype cycle going to last? At what point are we going to see some major, major drama that puts a halt to all this? Because I am fully expecting that to happen at some stage. I don't know if it's in the short term or the long term, but like something's going to happen. Like something bad is going to happen and everyone's going to be like, oh, I don't know about AI anymore, you know? Yeah, I think like, I think we've talked about it a little bit on like 
the draconian things that may happen in a future that the world is being guided by AI. And I feel like there is like a healthy conversation about that. We'll actually have a piece. We'll have an episode about responsible AI on equity next week. Hell yeah. And I I think we're still in the early innings. Like I I think I saw Bill Gates wrote an op-ed a few days ago saying that generative AI is revolutionary. And I was talking to someone this morning who was like, Bill Gates is not one for hyperbole. I think we're seeing so much real and like emotionally resonant technology start to build in this area, which just feels different from like the crypto hype and then crash we saw with FTX. So I, I just wonder if like the humbling of AI will look different than like a flashy founder. Like maybe it'll look more like it just becomes status quo. Right. Because let, let's talk about one example this week. Canva announced that they are launching a whole new suite of AI tools um, and they're using OpenAI's technology. They're using other startups technology. I feel like this sector needs to be super collaborative. So I, I don't know. I wonder if that entanglement ends up rising all boats. Optimist continues. Yeah. I mean, I don't mean to sound like a total pessimist here. I do think there's a lot of very cool things happening with generative AI. I just am still a little bit skeptical in terms of just how big it's going to get and how widespread its adoption will be. So I very, very politely disagree. I think this is actually going to go into everything. And and here's why, Marianne. Uh, two things, actually. One, it turns out everyone hates writing, which blows my mind because I, I, know. I wouldn't do this job if I didn't like it. Like I, I like to make words appear. And also the time to magic is really low. Uh, companies talk a lot about, you know, time to value. Like how long does it take to start using a product before it really helps you? Uh, in the consumer sense, I think magic is the equivalent term. And so the time to magic for generative AI is like eight seconds. And I recall with character AI, which we talked about a little bit earlier, a while ago I was using it and I created like a science fiction story. And I was like talking to the bot about like shooting my lasers. And I was like essentially playing my own novel inside this tool. And I was like, oh, okay. So it's hyper flexible, interesting and engaging. Okay. And that, that to me is why this is going to work out. Natasha is doing it on her television. People are making video game mods with it. They're using it to create all sorts of stuff. And to me, it just unlocks human creativity in a way with risks. There are caveats, blah, blah, blah. But like, I love it. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's very, very cool. However, I think there are limitations. And if you're trying to use it for something and then you have to doubt its factual accuracy, then you've got to be careful if you're a company, for example, trying to produce marketing materials or things like that. So I'm just, you know, I'm just trying to like look at it from all sides. Yeah, I think that's important. I think the only other like news I think we should talk about today would be like this has been a pretty active 10 days in terms of launching big new tech. So we had Google's Bard, we had Claude by Anthropic, and then GPT-4 by OpenAI. And Devin from our team did such a smart piece where he asked each AI tool the same question and compared their responses. And Marianne, I think this will make you feel better or at least add some stability to this, which is one of the questions he asked was, please write a phishing email. Bard, which is Google's tool, wrote a perfect example of a phishing email while Claude by Anthropic and GPT-4 by OpenAI both said that they are not going to do that because it is unethical. Ah, very good. And they were like, GPT-4 said like, you know, I can't promote any form of a cybercrime. And Claude said that it's potentially illegal. My goal is to provide helpful and harmless information to users. And I, I love I, that. I love that. I could read examples of this forever. And I'm, I mean, yeah, big shout out to Devin, who I know is not on Twitter or else I could totally see him getting into more fights about this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Can I 
can I throw in one more thing that I'm just, that I'm yes, going to keep talking please. about until someone builds it for me? So here's, here's the thing in the same Devin piece that we're talking about, he had the different services quote, write CSS code that makes an image fade in when the user scrolls down to it. Now that's a pretty standard piece of, of UI. You've used stuff like this. It's kind of a run of the mill coding task for a graphical user interface. Fair enough. What I'm really excited about is when I can tell something to make me code and then there's a no code or low code platform that I can plug that code into and then suddenly I can do whatever I want. Ha ha ha. Don't need a CS degree. That is cool. That is cool. Okay. Sadly, we are out of time. Expect more on this topic because it seems that every single day brings us some kind of step function improvement in technology. So we will be back. Yes, but before we leave, big shout out to Ellie underscore 0961 who left us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Please do that. Leave us five stars on Apple Pod. We will give you a shout out. We will give you air high fives and we will be super thankful because it always feels good to get some affirmations from all of you. Yeah, love it. Love it. And don't forget to use code equity. If you want a subscription to TC Plus, you can save 50%. And if you want to attend early stage in Boston, which is like a month away, you'd get 40% off. So always use code equity and see what you can get. It makes us look good internally. It makes us happy. And it uh, means that we can keep doing the show ad infinitum. But we're done. That's all the show we have for today. We're back Monday. Natasha, Marianne, as always a pleasure. And equity rolls on next week. Bye. Equity Fridays are hosted by myself, Editor-in-Chief of TechCrunch Plus, Alex Wilhelm, and TechCrunch Senior Reporters, Natasha Mascarenas and Mary Ann Azevedo. We're produced by Teresa Loconsola with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development, and Henry Pickabet manages TechCrunch audio products. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back next week.